All right, we are rolling now. Counting us down. Three, two. You're listening to Missing Out with Lex Michael and Tari J. Let's start the show. Hey there, Misketeers. Welcome back to Missing Out. I'm Tari J. I'm Lex Michael. And if this is your first time listening, what we do here is we introduce each other to different media, whether it be movies, music, television, spoken word, books, experiences, things that have built us up as people, and we hope that in sharing it, it builds you up. We are the retrospective that is introspective. Uh, I did not see that masterful introduction coming, and in fact was, was, so, was so caught unawares that it stole my pants. Oh man, that was a that was a really good one. I, I see what you did there uh, with my own two eyes because it was wrapped in gauze. I started a truly terrible thing, and I'm very sorry. It's fine. <laughs> um, you've gone mad because of the chemicals you've in d- d- introduced into your system. Uh, anyway, so if uh. <laughs> if you hadn't guessed from what we were talking about, uh, we are discussing The Invisible Man, the original from 1933, based off of the H.G. Wells book. It was directed by James Whale, produced by Carl Limley Jr. Wow! <laughs> uh, it's starring... You know, you, know, you, you go, wow, but th- th- at once upon a time, sir, uh, that was a big deal. Uh, Carl Limley Jr. is quite a name in the annals of Hollywood history. I'm aware, but I mean, you know, that was just me lifting up the value. Uh, <laughs> let's see what that else. That was you. You're, you're excited. That was you letting everybody else know that they should be excited as well. Exactly. <laughs> There's so a wait, whole wait. bunch of theaters named after Limley. <laughs> That's <Ooh>. true. <laughs> There's one in uh, North Hollywood that I've been to a whole bunch. Their matinee tickets are... are uh, what there were only like twelve bucks, I think, which was great. Or, uh, were in the world before, right? Like this is important. This this is a very important time in history where we're, we're talking about this movie, right? For a couple of reasons. Uh, one, uh, I don't know if y'all have noticed uh, the world. The world feels a little bit like it might be ending. It's not, but it feels a little bit like it might be. We're all now confined to our homes, right? Businesses, including and and very pertinent to this conversation in a number of ways, uh, like movie theaters, like the, the Lemley chain, amongst uh, many, many others, in fact, all, uh, are, are shutting down so that we can uh, effectively social distance. And one of the effects of that industry-wide decision is that certain big studios, uh, Universal really kind of leading the charge with, with a number of titles, are taking their current run theatrical titles and releasing them direct to streaming, including the new Lee Wannell, Elizabeth Moss collaboration, uh, Invisible Man, which I talked about a couple of weeks ago on Missing Out Monday. I thought it was a a total blast. Uh, But now everybody who hasn't seen it has a perfect opportunity to see it. And in fact, no excuse not to. But I figured what better time since now uh, that movie's available for everybody to check out. And I was a real big fan. Why not kind of go all the way back to the beginning of the Invisible Man phenomenon in movies. And I, I am a big fan of sort of the the original pantheon of universal monsters, which includes, of course, you know, Dracula, the Frankenstein monster, the Wolfman, the mummy, the creature from the Black Lagoon, and, and of course, uh, the Invisible Man. I thought uh, this could be a really fun chance to take a look at 
uh, sort of a, a movie that A, birthed a phenomenon, B, has a really interesting pedigree, and C, um, I think uh, you could, in a way, argue that uh, the Universal Monsters Pantheon is sort of like the original uh, uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe in so far as uh, they, they have these big, larger-than-life, uh, iconic, marquee mascot characters that they would introduce in their individual stories and that those individual stories would spawn sequels, right? Like Dracula, Frankenstein, Invisible Man all had their own sequels, but the popularity of these characters was such that eventually it made sense to Universal Pictures to start throwing them together in different movies. So you'd get, you know, say like Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, but you also get the big monster rally movies. And, and you know, maybe one of the most beloved is, of course, uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, where, where you know, the, the two legendary uh, comedians are sort of running around getting into these weird adventures surrounded by all of the big Universal monsters. Um, so I figured, since I'm a big old fan of, of all this, uh, uh, I wanted to introduce you to it, and I, I feel like it's a great uh, could be a great companion to the experience that people are getting to have now checking out uh, the new movie. But I I, I want to know, uh, Tari, as we as we uh, uh, tread into these waters, uh, did you have much familiarity at all with uh, the Universal Monster, the original classic Universal Monster movies, outside of obviously? You know, everybody recognizes the characters and stuff, but like, did you have, um, had you seen any of these movies before? No, uh, I, as you said, have seen them like reference and I've seen uh, like the later adaptations of the different movies. Like I've seen Hollow Man, which is a different <laughs> variety of the Invisible Man. Yes, um, Hollow I've Man seen, is definitely a take. Yeah. Uh, I've seen a uh, uh, bunch of werewolf movies, a um, bunch of vampire movies, uh, but I had never seen the originals. I guess the closest thing that I would say uh, is a lot of the uh, uh, Scooby-Doo stuff it featured the original monsters. <laughs> um, even there's a, one of my favorite Scooby-Doo things was the uh, Ghoul School where they were teaching the children of the original <laughs> monsters. Like that shit was my jam, but that's yeah. the closest I came to experiencing the original monsters in their, like, I guess, universal original forms. Okay. Um, well, so, so I guess I, I do want to talk about, because I think before I, I sort of hijacked this, this mine cart and took us on the roller coaster, uh, I think you were about to uh, allude to some of the talent involved in the movie. Uh, but I think what, what, might behoove us slightly, uh, because my uh, what I just did was was something like a like a pitch, a sort of big unwieldy uh, meta contextualizing uh, sort of thing. But I want to know uh, what what did you what, haha, see? What did you see when you watched this movie, man? Like if you had to lay this plot out to me or to somebody else, what would you tell somebody happens in this original uh, incarnation of the Invisible Man on screen? Um. Well. It sounds like you're asking me to do a Buster recap. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So basically, this movie, uh, I, it has non-traditional three-act structure. Or not. Yeah. So a lot happens in this thing. Uh, <laughs> basically, 
we start out in a, what feels like an old Western tavern and everyone's having a good time drinking and singing and playing the piano and then a stranger from out of town comes and he's demanding and he's rude and he's a piece of shit and then he essentially he gets a room there and then refuses to leave because he wants to do his science uh and then he everyone wants him out of town and so what he does is he decides to become a terrorist in this town and he gets naked using his invisibility and essentially just starts flipping stuff over making people think they're crazy uh and he gets real jaunty about it then he takes his friend hostage and he's like yo you're gonna be my accomplice in toppling the the world structure because look at all this power i have i mean i'm susceptible to bullets but like i have so much power and his friend is like i i don't i don't want to do this and he's like but if you don't i'm gonna murder you so uh his friend dimes on him real good and uh he ends up they have to do this like really elaborate plan because no one knows how to stop this invisible man. He could be anywhere. Ooh, he's so invisible. And he's uh, megalomi- megalomaniacal because of a specific chemical that he used in his solution to become invisible. And so we get the doctor character, his love interest, and this cowardly, cowardly snitch. Um, and they're like, all right, we're going to help him. But he won't let them help him. So he kills the cowardly snitch and the uh the police end up trapping him and murdering him to death <laughs> well done yeah uh, it sounds like quite a movie i you know what I, I i now move that we essentially scrap this entire uh this entire show and we sort of rebrand as a show where you just describe 1930s monster movies to me <laughs> um i mean I could, but we've we've gone too far. We we uh, we we've invested too much time. We can't pivot now. We can only we integrate. Com- we committed in a very cavalier fashion, and we realized along the way things may have gotten out of hand. Yeah. Ooh. Damn. Look at you, just like integrating. Um. <laughs> uh. So yeah, I guess we've done our pitch. We've done. We busted a recap. Uh. So if you haven't seen this thing. Um, we just gave you the lowdown just so now you remember all the things. Um, and we're going to Spoil- spoilers for, uh, an almost what an almost hundred year old movie. Now, uh, yeah. this thing is coming up. I think this thing is what coming up on 90 years pretty soon. Uh, yeah, about, so you've had plenty of time to get on this movie. <laughs> if you're worried about spoilers for the 1933 invisible man, I feel like you had time to catch right. up. Also, um, honestly, there's not a lot of plot in this thing, so like is, yeah. spoilers don't mean anything. Right. Um, like there's a there's, lot of there's a lot of stuff, and there's a lot of stuff that I think, much like um, sort of the entire, especially the the sort of big big titles in that pantheon, much like those other movies. I think there's a ton to recommend. I think there's a ton that is really fun. I think there's a ton um, in this movie, just like in, in all the sort of big marquee uh, universal monster movies, there's a ton that you've seen replicated, parodied, referenced a million, million, million times since. Um, and there's some stuff that I, I actually think is genuinely well executed, especially given that there wasn't necessarily a template for stuff like this on film uh, before, uh, give or take, you know, this time in history. 
Yeah. So um, if you would like to watch it uh, just to get a nice little refresher or you're like, yo, that sounds so cool. I'm going to get into it. Then you can do so. It's on all major streaming platforms for rent. Uh, it's on Amazon, Apple TV, Google Play Store, uh, Zune. Uh, not Zune. What is it called? I don't remember. It doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, check it out. Uh, and while you're here, if you are feeling so kind, uh, please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts app. It helps us get to the top of the charts, helps uh, other people find it. As you know, the most potent form of marketing is word of mouth. Uh, so there we've done the spiel. We've done all the pre break stuff. So we'll see you right after this. All right. We are back. So this this movie uh, yes. I don't know. I don't know what. I guess I didn't really go in with any real specific expectations, other than a man is going to be invisible. Well, then I um, think we can safely say that your your expectations were met, if not that's, surpassed. Because not only is he invisible, but he's like really invisible. Yeah, uh, and it's <laughs> it's it was crazy. So I I, I didn't have any real con- concept of what the story was going to be. And then a lot of real bonker stuff took place. Um, And it, it was amusing. And at the same time, um, it kept me guessing. Uh, The guy who plays the invisible man, Claude Rains. Yes. um, I think he did a really good job. Um, He, he, because the character is so like boisterous and flamboyant and, and, Full of, like, I guess, glee at the evil he does. Um, yes. I think he did a really good job of portraying that where you never actually get to see him. You only see him at the very end once he is like, come back to reality. Oops, there goes gravity. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so, okay, well, let's, let's talk about Claude Rains for a second, right? Because So this was Claude Rains' first sound film. Um, and he, of course, would go on to to be in a number of massively noteworthy movies. He was in uh, The Adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn. He was in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. He played uh, the father of the Lon Chaney Jr. character in The Wolfman. He's in Casablanca. He's in Lawrence of Arabia. But he had not done a sound film before. And he was not Universal's first choice for this role. Universal wanted Boris Karloff. And Boris Karloff at that point, you know, certainly as far as they were concerned, was a very big star. He had played, uh, uh, you know, just prior to this, the Frankenstein monster for director James Whale. He had also played uh, Imhotep the mummy. So they were looking for Karloff, but uh, I guess they were still at the time reeling from the impact of the Great Depression. And so they were trying to uh, sort of change the the terms of the agreement they were going to make with Karloff in a way that Karloff sort of didn't didn't take to. So he he walked. And James Whale was trying to find his his leading man. And I guess uh, Claude Rains, I believe the story is that Claude Rains had done a a camera test or an on-camera audition for the studio um, at at a point in time, not not too far prior, but that it was not a very good audition. It was very big and very theatrical and very, very mannered and just way too much. But there was a quality to his voice. 
And James Whale said, okay, you know what? I would really like this guy to play this role because what you need, you don't need, uh, uh, you don't need a face for this character, really. You don't. You don't need the big theatrical. Like all of this stuff is not actually a hindrance. These big theatrical mannerisms, whatever it is he's doing, all this business, it's not actually going to matter because you don't see the motherfucker. But the voice is absolutely crucial, and that's how uh, they they settled on Claude Rains for the part. And it's just he brings this crazy, big, over the top, manic energy to this character, um, Doctor Jack Griffin, and he. Because like you say, like so much happens in this thing. This thing is only an hour and 12 minutes long and a ton of stuff happens. And you need a performer who can A, sort of uh, embody the role and give these scenes a center even when he is not on camera. Um, but you also need somebody who can uh, convey Griffin's emotional state in such a way where uh, the, the scene where he basically on a dime goes from, okay, so a second ago, I was just like knocking stuff over because this is silly to we're going to do invisible assassinations. Like you have to be able to take that journey with that guy. Like you have to buy the sort of manic insanity of of that dude. And I feel like, yeah, you needed a, a, a Claude Rains. Um, so, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Claude fan. I'm a big Claude fan. Plus, uh, oh. have you, yeah. No, I like, uh, he also did, um, Claude Rains also got to do uh, Phantom of the Opera a couple years after this, uh, which is super cool. Like they they remade because Phantom of the Opera is one of theirs as well. Like Lon Chaney played the original silent Phantom okay. of the Opera. So one of their several remakes, um, they did one in like, you know, big, like beautiful Technicolor and stuff. And it, and they cast uh, Claude Rains as the Phantom. I want to say that was like two years, two years after this, two, three, maybe more. Okay. As a Claude Rains fan, would you refer to yourself as a Rainer or a, a Claudette or a Clauder. I, I feel like if if Claude Rains was real big now, especially with the teen set, I feel like they'd be called like reindeers or something like that. Oh, that's a good one. I like that. Um, so you were talking about how they don't need a face for this character. Um, so this the technology of uh the special effects for this movie was really interesting. I had read up about it. In that, essentially, for all the stuff where he was manipulating things, they used, like, wire stuff. But anytime he had to, like, put on or remove clothes or, or was partially invisible, they essentially had him in an all-black velvet suit uh, underneath the, like, clothes. And then they matted him out because um, he they did that in front of a black background and then essentially composited those th two things together, which is a really uh, interesting way of doing that. It, it almost feels like a proto um, blue or green screen. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's fascinating, too, that you could technically do a lot of the same stuff now. Of course, this was sort of cutting edge effects technology at the time. But a lot of what you're seeing um, as far as like, you know, the the tech, the sort of now, of course, low grade tech that, that you're describing um, you could do a version of that with your phone now. You know what I mean? Like, I, and that's something else that I love about going back to older movies like this, where um, if they were not directly pioneering this technology on the, the specific project, they were still working with technology that was essentially brand new. Right. And you can kind of look at that and then appreciate the historical context, but also 
it's kind of a great how-to because you don't need uh, studio backing and you don't need um, the greatest technical wizards in the business to create some of this stuff now. Um, and so I love that, yeah, like it's, it's, it's a really effective and entertaining sort of uh, uh, guide if you want to try and do some of this yourself now. In a way, of course, you couldn't uh, back then, but you can if you have the time. Uh, you can go out and basically shoot plates like they did. Um, you could do it with your phone almost. You know, you could go out and shoot plates and create. Uh, you could make yourself invisible. You fuck with your friends, amuse your enemies. Ooh. Also, wow. uh, sidebar: uh, Phantom of the Opera was like ten years after this movie, so I don't know where I got a couple of years. Well, technically, it is a couple of years. Couple of, uh, uh, yeah, couple of five year groupings. There we go. Right. Uh, totally. Um, no yeah. one was going to fact check you. No one was going to go on Twitter and be like, this mother idiot doesn't know how long there's things that, take. There's that one guy, though. You know, there's always going to be that one guy. And it's definitely going to be a guy who's sitting there going, oh, this motherfucker doesn't know whether Claude Rains was the Phantom of the Opera before or after Casablanca. Unsubscribe. And I want to make sure that that guy feels seen. Oh, well, uh, does he need to be seen, though? It, it, <laughs> maybe it's better if he's an invisible man. Uh, oh, yep. oh, oh, yeah, so good. I got I got full body tingles just now because of how genius you are. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I forgot to write down the chemical that uh, drives men mad. It's like monochronistic carbon or something. Um, um, what is it? Monocane? Yeah, that sounds right. I think it's I think it's monocane. And I do think in the original um in the original story, I think uh the the character just goes insane with strychnine. But yes, they wanted to create, I guess, a sort of sciency movie chemical that just sort of lets people know, yeah, 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 no, this like made him super duper crazy. Right. Yeah, he had guys, he had no uh no will of his own. It wasn't because he was a bad guy. Just like, you know, he went mad as a hatter in the most literal sense as possible. Um, but I thought, so the fact that there was like a, a chemical thing involved, it, it, it kept making me think about uh, Jekyll and Hyde, the, uh, the musical. Okay. Be because it's this idea, and, and uh, especially because it's this thing where... Um, Essentially, he is used, he uses this chemical and he becomes this other thing. And then he be, he goes on a murder spree and everyone's like, oh, there's a killer on the loose. How do we get him? We're in London. Um, and I really I think that really helps anchor me into this movie is the idea that the Invisible Man is basically just like uh, Jekyll and Hyde the <laughs> musical, not the original story, because in the original story. He didn't like he was still him. He just got to look different. So he was like, I'm still a murdering pervert. Oh, oh, oh I just get to be murdering and perverted as this other guy, um, which is different. Uh, I like it, though. And now now what I really want, especially in a world where the Invisible Man uh, did really well. Uh, especially for its budget. I think they made the new one. I think they they made for something like $7 million and it made a good deal more than that. So clearly Universal, and they have for, for many years now been trying to sort of relaunch their, their pantheon of classic monsters as a new Marvel-style shared universe. I feel like 
now is the perfect time. The audience is clearly there for a story that pairs the invisible man with Jekyll and Hyde, and it's called The Murdering Perverts. And I feel like <laughs> you just you just hatched a billion-dollar idea. All right. Well, I'll get started on the spec script, uh, <laughs> or at least the treatment. I don't know if I'll do a full script because, like, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sold completely yet. Uh, I feel like we need to do a little bit more uh, Jekyll and Hyde development before we can really bring these guys together. Um, <laughs> but down the line, I think we can definitely make it happen. I mean, we've already got a we've got a Jekyll waiting in the wings in the form of uh, <laughs> Russell Crowe. No, he's fired. <laughs> uh, I don't I don't like the the like the new approach where they're just like, ha ha, look at all these. Look, look, the, the universe is there already. No, I want it to be something where, um, you know, each of the, the monsters are kind of like doing their own thing. Right. And then you you only get them together as you meet survivors and they're like, I, uh, this weird thing happened. And then they're like, oh, this weird thing happened. Or they like consult. with. So it's it's not even that the monsters are are hanging out together. It's that like the people in this universe will like interact with each other here and there. And then eventually, like maybe the monsters can come together as like part of that in that they're like they, they start Freddy versus Jason style um, arguing over who's going to attack these survivors, you know, okay. they're like, bro, this is my guy. And then they're like, no, <laughs> I, the invisible man claim these people. And then they start fighting that way. Um, okay. I mean, you were, you were on your way towards describing a version of what the actual classic universal model was. Um, and then, and then sort of veered off that mark. But, um, they, they, yeah, they, they really didn't, to the best of my recollection, there were not too terribly many times like where the sequels were direct, for example, mm -hmm. or, um, you know, like James Whale, who did Frankenstein, who did the invisible man would come back, um, another couple years later and do the bride of Frankenstein, uh, one of the most iconic of that pantheon. And also still to this day considered one of the greatest sequels ever made, uh, You'd have, you know, you'd have those characters come back directly, but then you come back for the next Frankenstein installment, which was a couple years after that, Son of Frankenstein, where you bring back Boris Karloff, but most of the rest of the cast, totally new characters, and there are sort of vague allusions to, uh, well, you know, Henry Frankenstein made a made a monster, and it was very bad. Oh, look, there he is. Run. Mm. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Plus, uh, in, in Son of Frankenstein, Karloff gets to wear this really sweet sort of furry vest number. Um, which rules, okay. uh, but, but unlike two, I mean, you know, I made the, uh, the earlier comparison to the Marvel movies because yeah, that this is sort of, um, uh, uh, ground zero for, for throwing big sort of marquee, uh, pop characters together that way. But, uh, unlike Marvel who of course, you know, you, you sort of ideally you cast one actor and they continue to play that character for years and years and years to, you know, tighten that continuity up in the universal monster pantheon. You know, you'd have uh, Karloff played the Frankenstein monster a couple of times and then somebody else would step in. Bela Lugosi played Dracula, didn't want to play the Frankenstein monster because of all the makeup. Well, Bela Lugosi's career isn't doing so hot a few years later. And so he decides, fine, I'll play the Frankenstein monster. Lon Chaney Jr. plays the Wolfman. And I believe actually he's sort of unique in this regard. He's the Wolfman in the Universal Monster movies really was sort of Lon Chaney Jr.'s character. But then 
he also jumped in the makeup and played the Frankenstein monster and stuff. Um, with the Invisible Man, you know, you have Claude Rains in his first movie, but then I believe in the sequel, I believe it's I believe it's Invisible Man Returns. The uh, you have essentially Vincent Price uh, playing uh, the 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 invisible man, even though of course it's, it's the voice, but you sort of see his face at the end. And then he gets to come back as the voice of the invisible man, like at, uh, in the little tag ending of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein and stuff. So like, it's a, there's some overlap, I suppose, in terms of how um, the, the long form, you know, quote unquote continuity of these characters was treated. uh, You know, if you're comparing it to Marvel, but also nowhere near as clean because they were doing something that really didn't exist. You know what I mean? Like they, you, now there's a Marvel model to ape, you know what I mean? But like at the yeah. time it was just, okay, let's get as many of these big monster stars as we can to show up for each one of these projects every time. If they can play the character that they're super famous for playing, awesome. If not, I don't know, mix and match. Um, and and so you get a lot of really interesting combinations uh, out of that. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, though, I feel like the Marvel model is – not the model that they would need to follow. Like, I think it would have to be something like what the, is it, is it the insidious series? Ha- like they have spinoffs and stuff like that. And like the Annabelle, all that. Oh, where it, um, um, conjuring. Yeah. Conjuring. Like it would need to be like that. Like you can't, you can't, you can't do it the way that Marvel did it. Cause they started with fairly known heroes and stuff. Right, but like you, you can't do that with heroes or with with like monsters, because monsters are are the villains. Well, so and that's really interesting too, right? Like, so in uh, Invisible Man actually does sort of stand out uh, amongst that that wave of Universal monster movies, in as much as even though uh, Griffin is is you know he's the Invisible Man, he is the villain of your story, he's still very much the protagonist. Whereas, you know, of course, um, in Dracula, that's not the case. Frankenstein, that's not the case. The Mummy, that's not the case. And they've been trying to, in their Universal's more recent attempts to sort of relaunch a new shared cinematic universe, they keep trying to make the monster the protagonist. And I feel like that's that's one of the genius, uh, real savvy, calculated moves on the part of Lee Wennell in the new Invisible Man, is that no, like the Invisible Man very much is your sort of, um, your, your, you know, your, your quote unquote unknowable antagonist. Right. Um, right. Yeah, because they need to be more of like this entity that you either love to hate or this thing that you are afraid will keep coming back. Like they just need to be this like unstoppable force. And you're just you're living from the perspective of their victims or their potential victims or the people who are hunting them down or whatever. Like, I feel like right. that has to be the take that you come away with. Yes. And I, I think they completely nail that in the new movie. And I think it's really interesting because, because exactly what you're describing is sort of the standard approach in this pantheon, but not for the invisible man. And I, I really think it's interesting that in the original movie, it's almost the, the 180 of that. Like, it's not just that he's a completely unknowable killer who you're always wondering, like, where is he going to show up next and stuff? It's like, no, you're going on this, this, uh, he's almost chasing his whimsy. You know what I mean? Like, you, you spend so much time with this guy and you're like, everything he's doing is, is completely monstrous. But 
he's just like you get you get to just sort of soak in how much he's enjoying it. You know what I mean? Like you actually sort of follow him on this on this journey. You're not reacting to him along with the protagonist or along with his victims. You're sort of you're on that ride with him. He's driving the car and you just have to sort of pity all of the poor folk that that end up in his crosshairs and stuff. Right. And I think that like they they try to balance it with this idea that he is also trying to cure the the invisibility as well, which uh, is his reason, at least initially, they make it feel like he's just a, a tortured scientist who's like, you know, I just I just got to get back so I can fi- be with the love of my life. And then eventually he I think once the police come after him and he realizes that he can do whatever he wants, he's like, you know what? I decided to pivot. And instead of curing myself, <laughs> I'm going to, uh, you know, d- I do dissolve. murders now. Yeah, I'm just, yeah, I'm going to be a fun murderer. You know, it seems but like honestly, really cool. the, you're, it's, he's sort of like um, he's like Walter White in that way. You know what I mean? Like he he applies his scientific prowess ostensibly to, let's say, solve a problem. And then discovers that the means by which he is approaching this problem are so uh, seductive and so addictive. And it ends up, he almost uh, manifests himself, right? Because Griffin, you know, he goes insane and we see uh, characters that were part of his life before sort of lamenting how this great, brilliant man has has uh, fallen into potential madness. And then we see, obviously, like, very, very uh, uh, mad, uh, murderous intention. Um, but he sort of gradually comes to choose that for himself. You know, um, he, he becomes a, a science villain. I also right. like that the science in this movie is, is essentially indistinguishable from magic potions and stuff, which is why <laughs> I, I actually quite like the, uh, the comparison to Jekyll and Hyde. Mm. I mean, you know, cause we have, we have the, the like magic ingredient, but like, I think that uh, he, maybe he wouldn't have gone mad if that uh, the like, hostess would have just left him alone he was like i don't want tea and she's like one o'clock is tea time and it's like bro if you just wouldn't have uh tried to shove tea in his face he wouldn't have had to throw everyone down the stairs um so i feel like we 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 really really uh need to blame the townsfolk their their xenophobia they should have just let him do his science. Yeah. Like that's that's the whole first act of this movie, right? Is like you you talked about when you were breaking it down. Um he shows up at this at this inn, he demands a room, he's all wrapped in the bandages and stuff, and he, he says he's gotta be totally left alone. And they at first say okay, and then they start to think something's a little weird about this guy. And so the whole first act of this movie is this scientist deciding I basically run this in now and uh, I'm going to do my science here. And then he won't leave. Yeah. Like the whole first wave of this movie is just this guy, this, this strange man with a, with an unknown affliction keeps doing science and will not leave. And um, you talk about the, the innkeeper's wife who's played by an actress named Una O'Connor who uh, would also work with James Whale again on, the Bride of Frankenstein, uh, playing a fairly similar character, like same energy and stuff like that. She was also in the uh, Errol Flynn Robin Hood along with uh, Claude Rain. She was in John Ford's The Informer. Um, 
it's just a really fun actress to watch. But yes, this poor this poor woman who uh, is really just trying to do her job and also trying to figure out, you know, something's up with this guy and that's probably not good for us. Like it's not something's wrong with this guy so I should persecute this guy. It's like something's up with this guy and and maybe he's dangerous. Maybe like we just don't we just don't know. And this poor woman uh, <laughs> really is just trying to do her job. And this invisible dude is just like flipping shit out of her hands, knocking stuff over and stuff, just upsetting this this poor. She's she's just a, she's a working she's a working lady. She's trying to she's trying to hold it all together. And this this poor invisible vagabond was uh, this, this black heart is ruining her work day. <laughs> That's true. He was very rude. Uh, never said a please, never said a thank you, was just like, give me a this and give me a that, go away, I'm a sh- shit. Um, <laughs> which also, so he, he, there's a moment, this is a sidebar, um, but he describes how when he eats, um, he must be left oh, alone yeah. because uh, the food can be seen inside of him. So, so does that mean like he can track as he's like getting ready to take a poop? He's like, oh, there it is. And he knows how much uh, poop he has left inside of his system, uh, which like maybe invisibility would be worth that. Honestly, if you had any sort of gastrointestinal issues, yeah, it would probably help a great deal. What I think is really interesting and it is, it is, um, it's sort of part and parcel of of telling a story like this in the uh, on film in the 30s, right? Especially, and you you see more and more um, as they make sequels to The Invisible Man. Obviously, their their power is sort of reliant on them not being covered up with stuff. There's actually a lot of discussion in this movie about how you know uh, I can't be in the rain because people can see me. I can't even be in a fog because people can see me. Like he tries to get his buddy uh, on board and is like, "Listen, not only are you going to help me murder folks, but you're going to have to clean the dirt from between my toes and stuff because if people see my toe dirt, they'll know the invisible man is coming and stuff like that." So they're they're reliant on being nude, and so uh, the movies play with with that quite a bit. Now the the thing about the food being visible in his stomach like this is at a point in the story where yes he's declared his intention to go out and and fuck with people but for the most part he's just sitting around uh in his in his room at the inn right so if he needs an hour after eating he could easily just put on clothing but he's electing not to and i like that i like that implication about the entire conversation is predicated on we all just have to accept that the invisible man is not going to put on clothes. Right. He's just not going to do it. It's yeah. too freeing to be completely nude. So what that means is for an hour after meals, no one can look at me. <laughs> which, by the way, I totally get. Like, we've all been there. We've all had a meal have after we? which we feel like we need to be alone for an hour. <laughs> um, so here's my question. Uh, is there a scenario in which invisibility can be a good thing to have? Because it feels like you can only really do nefarious things with invisibility. Like, it, it, it is a power that only lends itself to doing all the worst things. You're like, oh, man, I want to rob a bank. Oh, boy, I want to I wanna, uh, uh, steal stuff. 
oh boy, I want to, I want to peep on the, on the, the na- nudes. I want to peep on the nudes. Um, well, so, so the, I feel like the answer to that question is yes, but also no, because so there's a, uh, there's a, one of the sequels to Invisible Man um, came out uh, in the, in the forties was called The Invisible Agent where they basically had to enlist uh, an invisible man to help with the war effort. So ostensibly positive, right? Like you can, if you, if you, like he even talks about Claude Rains, the character in the movie talks about, you know, on a long enough timeline, we create armies of invisible soldiers and whatnot. So on, on the one hand, if you're fighting, say, Nazis, I could see how, yeah, having uh, in, invisible soldiers or at least an invisible agent could be a big plus. However... Okay. However, that doesn't just go away the second you defeat the bad guys. And who does that power, who does that technology fall into the hands of? Which is to say, I think, yes, you could do good. I think that power being out there is is terrible, right? right. Because it's very, it's so easy, especially, especially if it goes hand in hand with becoming a crazy person. Because even if, even if your brain is not being... Uh, uh, acted upon by this chemical, how can it not sort of warp your perception of the world around you and your place in it and stuff? Um, that That's the issue is that like you could, you could use this power for good. It's just that the power existing uh, means that inevitably it will be used for malice. Mm. Yeah. It like, it reminds me of uh, the oxygen bomb in uh, or oxygen destroyer in the first Godzilla, where this guy is okay. like, "Look, I have this thing that is essentially world changing, but the moment I introduce it into the uh, the common world, it will become this thing that is this great evil. Um, so it has to. If we use it, I have to die with it, and so does every bit of information about it." Um, we also, when we talked about the original Godzilla, we also talked quite a bit about the oxygen destroyer and its ability to save people from the indignity of pooping themselves when they die, right. which is something, it's technology that I think the invisible man would absolutely be on board with. Like, totally. This is the crossover people deserve, frankly. Invisible <laughs> Godzilla. Can you imagine? Can you fucking imagine? <laughs> Godzilla comes to destroy your city and he's doing all the same shit. But you can't see him. Right. That would be an upsetting Thursday. That's true. Though we we got like a miniature version of that with the Indominus Rex in Jurassic World because that one could become invisible. So like, man, I do not bit. have. I don't have proper Jurassic World recall. I remember the name Indominus Rex. I didn't remember it having superpowers. I remember um, it, it being like all uh, the powers. Okay, I remember like, it being more intelligent, I think, but I don't remember it having superpowers. Yeah, so it was hyper-intelligent, it could camouflage, it could control other raptors, um, I think it could also, like, see heat signatures or something, um, and it could also fly and shoot lasers from its butt. Wow. Yeah, that's why they this called it the This sounds like a Thomas. way better movie than I remember. Oh, well, you should watch it again. And the sequel. Oh, that's it. That yep. was the end of that thought. <laughs> where, yeah. Where else would I go? Yeah. Watch it and the sequel. Um, uh, uh, the sequel has, uh, you know how the Indominus Rex had a, a raptor in it? Well, this time they combined it with more raptor. Yep. 
It's a dumb in movie. One, in this one, you find out that uh, Men in Black style, the Indominus Rex was actually being controlled by a tiny dinosaur running, running it like a robot from its head. I would watch that movie. Everybody would watch that movie. That movie would make a billion dollars. They literally could do it in a computer over a weekend. You don't have to pay any A-list actors at all. Uh, where where do I cast this check that Hollywood is about to write me for this brilliant? Pro- I'm gonna I'm reshaping the entire industry as we record this. That's true. I, I think you can cash it using online banking through Wells Fargo. Chase Bank or Bank of America, use your phone to deposit checks. Is this is this where I learn uh, that you've actually been backed by the major banks this entire time and just have not told me? Uh, yeah, I'm a I'm a I'm a advocate for big bank. Um, you know, I'm I, all of their interests are in my best interests. Anytime that they get a bailout, I get a bailout. It's pretty neat. <laughs> Oh, boy, that's the side you want to be on, because that's the side that our government takes care of. I'm a bank. If, if oh. corporations can be people, <laughs> I can be a bank. <laughs> that's that's your plan. You need you just need the invisibility formula and then you can run to people's houses. You can dig under their mattresses, steal all their cash and you can say it's fine. I'm just holding on to it for you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, um, but I'll invest it while while I hold on to it, and uh, you know, if but don't take too much away from me, otherwise I'll charge you money. <laughs> but you just took all my money. And you're like, shut up. <laughs> That's uh, how banks you, work. <laughs> you take their pants. <laughs> you just you chase the townsfolk around in their pants. I do love, by the way, I really do love that he. Um, at first, his whole deal is, let me just fuck with people because this is fun and I'm sort of learning what I can and can't do and what I can and cannot get away with and how people will react. And then he literally murders a police officer. That's what he jumps right from, let me knock over this broom and open this window to, okay, I'm going to murder this police officer. And then takes a takes a break from from homicide, essentially, just to steal pants and run around in pants. And I appreciate that. I appreciate that that he really clearly, uh, despite um, his megalomaniacal aspirations, um, you know, he's very goal oriented and stuff. Uh, he he takes the time to just sort of chase his whimsy. Which right. I appreciate. I mean, my my issue with that is that right before he did it, and I guess it it shows his hubris and his his pride. But right before that. The police was like, yo, this Invisible Man stuff, hoax. I don't even need to fucking pay any attention to it. And so he could have just been doing his thing scot-free. But the moment that uh, the the police officer didn't agree with him uh, or didn't believe him, he's like, no, I exist. I'm a real thing. Ho, ho, ho. Everyone shall know the Invisible Man. And then he's like, man. I, I I hope no one knows who I am. I guess I have to clean up right. after my yeah. And and Kemp is like, wait, isn't everyone knowing who the Invisible Man is rather antithetical to the premise of being the Invisible Man? And Griffin's like, shut up, and kills him. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's messed up too. Like he literally, like Kemp. Kemp is a longtime friend and associate and and colleague. And just imagine. 
I mean, I'm trying to imagine a scenario in which, for example, uh, uh, you breeze into my my home uh, wrapped in bandages and stuff. You reveal to me that you are completely invisible and bent on world domination via via like high level murders and stuff, and that I have to be your toe cleaning boy. Um, I I'm just like, can you imagine? Like, I feel I of all the characters in the movie, I actually feel like. Kemp is maybe the easiest to feel truly sorry for, especially because uh, of the characters who are, uh, you know, relatively innocent in this story. His his uh, trajectory sort of ends the the worst, right. you know, in the most grisly fashion. And I feel real bad for this guy. <laughs> I mean, I think the worst part about it is that this dude comes into his house and is like, "Yo, I'm sleeping in your bed, bitch," and it's like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> I, I mean, you could sleep. I have other rooms. You could sleep on the couch. And he's like, nah, I'm going to sleep in your bed. And if you tell anybody, I'm going to kill you in your sleep. <laughs> yeah. And like, like, cause so it's not just enough to invade my space and also try to make me your errand boy. But you also got to disrespect me in my own goddamn house. Bro. Right. <laughs> he should just killed him outright. At the moment, he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Take these pajamas and then just stabbed him in the dick. You know, he's like, you can't hide in those pajamas. Kapow, kapow, kapow. This is sort of revealing. I like that in your in your narrative when you're like, if I was the invisible man, what would I do? I really like that. The narrative includes dick stabbing. I feel like that's that's what people are here for, frankly. I mean, well, this is in the narrative that if I am at the mercy of the invisible man, if I am the invisible man, I just like hang out, man. I just put on clothes. I just stay at home as much as I could. I don't know. <laughs> it does. Uh, it does feel a little bit though. Um, there, there are aspects of this movie that are very similar to uh, things that that James Whale was also playing with uh, in Frankenstein, and he was forced to tack on a, a happy ending to that movie because in the original version of the that first Frankenstein movie. Uh, the our, our scientist uh, in the movie, it's Henry Frankenstein, played by Colin Clive, does not survive. And so we had to tack on a happy ending so that, you know, everybody can feel a little bit better at the end of the day. And there are elements of this movie that felt like, yeah, so I didn't get to kill that that sort of over eager scientist. So I'm going to kill the shit out of this one. And uh, I didn't really get to kill off the, the sort of... Uh, uh, competition for the affections of the lady character in the last one either. So I'm going to create a lady character who is the love of our, our insane scientist. And I'm going to kill that other guy too and stuff like that. Um, and it, yeah, good for him. Good yeah. for James Whale. <laughs> totally. Um, uh, spe- oh, sorry. Speaking of which, um, did want to shout out real quick. Um, so this, this character, the, the love interest, the, uh, Flora Cranley, um, who uh, was created for the movie is played by an actress named Gloria Stewart. Now, uh, maybe you don't know the name Gloria Stewart, but you almost certainly know some of her work. Gloria Stewart, many, many years after this, would play the older Rose in James Cameron's Titanic. Um, so I think that's super fun. Uh, also, her father uh, is played by an actor named Henry Travers. Uh, Henry Travers, probably best known for playing the angel Clarence in uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, so I like seeing them show up and I like that there's uh, there's sort of connective tissue to a, a sort of bigger 
uh, let's call it sort of a bigger uh, uh, show business scene uh, that existed at that at that time. Okay. Um, yeah. I have a bit of trivia in that uh, James Whale was the inspiration for the character Dr. Whale in uh, Once Upon a Time, the series on ABC, who is later revealed to be Dr. Frankenstein. Oh, that's really Ooh. fun. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> Do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up on this episode? Um, I guarantee there'll be two or three things that I that I think of tomorrow that I'll be like, shit, I wish I had said that. But um, it seems like you had fun with this movie. If you had fun with this movie, I, I highly recommend um, certainly some of the other bigger titles in that pantheon. I mean, I can easily, easily recommend the two James Well Frankenstein movies to you um, because they are all timers. They are two of the most influential movies um, that have been made frankly um and so uh maybe maybe now that the the door is open i will i will find excuses to to sort of make you watch those as well but Sorry. I, i'm a book purist uh <laughs> and i know that frankenstein is the scientist and not the monster um and i know how the book goes so i don't know if i'll be <laughs> checking those out i'm a pedant but here's the thing, right? Like, even if even if you were playing this straight and you were like, damn, I don't really like the original James Well Frankenstein because it's not enough like the novel and stuff. Well, uh, rest assured that Bride of Frankenstein is so much less <laughs> like the books. Um, there's a there's a villainous scientist in that one called Dr. Pretorius who's uh, wanting to coerce Henry Frankenstein into sort of making another monster, a bride for the Karloff monster. Uh, but But what he does in his spare time is I guess he kind of grows tiny people and keeps them in jars. It's rad. Oh. Um, but but I'm glad we got a chance to talk about this. Um, these movies, you know, we talk about uh, on this show, we, we gesture a lot in the direction of uh, the, the idea of uh, media that, that was part of our formative experience, right? That sort of shaped us as people. And uh, for me, these Universal Monster movies uh, were things that I found – you know, fairly early in my childhood, I think the first time I saw uh, James Wells Frankenstein was on a, a tape. Somebody had recorded it off the TV, uh, however many years ago, and it had all the old commercials and stuff like that. But there was a uh, after my parents got divorced, my mom was in a, a relationship with uh, with someone, and we went to, I guess, his uh, his brother's house in North Carolina. Maybe. And they had big old boxes of VHS tapes that belonged to, I think, their mother. And he was going through all these VHS tapes, getting excited about some of the some of the finds, you know, like he, I remember him finding a VHS of like the original day of the earth just still getting really excited. And I dug through and I found the VHS tapes of, of basically the full Universal Monsters pantheon. And I remember being a kid, I, I had to you know, I, I was younger than 14, probably, um, and just sitting there tape after tape after tape, watching uh, all these Universal Monster movies and sort of falling in love with the concepts, falling in love with the actors, with the history and with this model of let's uh, create a paradigm wherein we can take these really popular characters and we can throw them together. Uh, and we can we can sort of sell a movie on here's yeah Frankenstein meeting the Wolfman or here's uh, you know here's Abbott and Costello meeting all the Universal monsters and stuff and it's a model that that yeah I really took to which is no surprise given how you know 
much I adore, you know, uh, uh, comic books, both the adaptations in, in cinema now and, of course, like the source material on the page. It felt very much like, oh, here's in a world where we didn't have the Marvel movies yet. Here's something for me, like a super nerdy comic booky fan. Uh, I can watch all these monsters just sort of go and party and rally together and stuff. And and it I, I actually think as I sit here now, literally right now talking about it, I feel like it shaped aspects of my taste to a greater degree than maybe I had put too much thought into before. So I uh, thank you for giving me an opportunity to talk about it. I highly, highly recommend the new one as well. Um, I, I think Lee Wenell did an incredible job finding a new angle on the Invisible Man story, something that feels very modern, very relevant. And uh, I think the execution is great. So so check that out. Um, what, what I guess, uh, just so I, I finally stop talking, I will turn this over to you and just ask, like, what, what was your takeaway from this? Having not seen this movie before, but also sort of being a newbie in the world of, uh, the, the classic Universal Monsters pantheon, um, seems like you liked it. Do you, do you feel any inclination maybe towards checking out some of the other ones? Um, I, my, I guess, so my takeaway is that I was really enamored by just the the visual effects aspects of it and a lot of the odd or big character stuff. Um, I don't know if it if it will make me want to like watch a lot of the other stuff. Uh, in that I it in terms of storytelling, I'm a very big plot guy, and I know that like before a certain time in terms of movies, like plots wasn't like the main aspect of storytelling. It was like, all right, we'll give you a little bit of story, but like, look at all this other stuff. Look at our technical things. Look at our characters. Look at our set design. Ooh, this was like a play. Um, and so uh, I gravitate more towards um, more plot heavy stuff, but like it, it doesn't dissuade me from wanting to check it out if it comes about in my life. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I see. So <laughs> If, if it if it walked into a room, you wouldn't be like you and get up and leave. Right. Got there it. you go. You got it. <laughs> um, but yeah. So uh, what did everyone at home think? If you had a chance to check it out, uh, let us know. You can do so at Missing Outcast. That's M-I-S-S-I-N-G-O-U-T-C-A-S-T. You can also watch the most recent version. It's streaming online now, uh, thanks to Universal and a lot of the other studios deciding to uh, provide content through their streaming platforms early. So make sure you do that as well. Support... Uh, the new Invisible Man. Support this Invisible Man. Support Lex Michael. You can do so uh, where? Uh, on Twitter and Instagram at the Lex Michael. And you can support me at Tari J. T A U R I J A Y. Also on Instagram and Twitter. We have one more installment of the March into Madness. <laughs> Uh, so next week, we're going to be covering the first album by the Mars Volta. It's called D-Lust in the Comatorium, the story of a man's descent into madness while he is stuck inside of his own body. Uh, so we hope you guys can join us next week for that. Until then, this has been the retrospective that is introspective. And now you have a new perspective on your very own pants as they run away without you.
after a poor townswoman. <laughs> Leave that poor townswoman alone, pants. Aww. <laughs>